Welcome to another edition of the Papa Cast. I'm Bob Papa. The 2016 NFL season is upon us, and who better to talk about it than my good buddy Mike Mayock of NFL Network, who does a spectacular job of breaking everything down. Mike, thanks for joining us. Can you believe another season is already here? I'm excited about it. I, I kind of had to have enough of football by the time the draft is over, you know, plus or minus May 1st. And uh, I get a real nice break. And by right about now, man, I'm jonesing for it. Let's talk about the quarterback situation just to get things started here, because obviously uh, we've seen some unprecedented moves made, made really late. And obviously the, the Teddy Bridgewater injury and then Sam Bradford getting traded to Minnesota and now Carson Wentz is going to get the starting job in Philadelphia. Why don't you refresh uh, the fans uh, of kind of what you thought of Wentz coming out uh, because you break it down like nobody else for NFL Network in the run-up to the draft and how he's won over the confidence of these coaches in Philadelphia to go ahead and have the courage to make this trade. Well, as far as a Wentz evaluation is concerned, when I came out with my top 100 players prior to the draft, Carson Wentz was number one. And I took a lot of heat for that um, because he was a one double A quarterback. He only had 23 starts, et cetera, et cetera. But I watched every throw this kid made. He's 6'5", 237 pounds. He, he's as impressive as it gets physically. But what really won me over were the intangibles, the leadership, the work ethic, the toughness, the intelligence. The kid never got a B in college, ever. Um He's the first one in. He's the last to lead. So when you're talking about first-round quarterbacks, Bob, where it's like a 50-50 hit or miss, I'd want to bet on a kid with all the intangibles, uh, and he's got all of that. Now, is he ready to go day one? Well, he's going to make some mistakes, and, and he's got some growing pains, I'm sure. But I thought it was a heck of a move by the Eagles. I also thought it was a ballsy move by Minnesota. Let's talk about it from Minnesota's perspective. Sam Bradford, obviously his career arc has been that of a guy that hasn't been able to stay healthy, finished strong last year. Are, are you a believer that Sam Bradford could come close to what people projected out of him and give Minnesota what they need? Because they got a good football team in a lot of other areas. Yeah, I, from, a, from a Bradford evaluation perspective, I'm where I was when he was coming out of Oklahoma, which is basically – when he's healthy and protected, he's one of the more accurate quarterbacks I've seen. Now, there, there are two significant caveats there. And the first one, he, I mean, he was, he was hurt a lot at Oklahoma, came out of college with, with a bad shoulder. Um, so there were question marks about durability, which obviously has been the major stumbling block. And he started out with a bad football team in St. Louis, came to Philadelphia. They had an offensive line. Uh, that was not even average. Uh, he got beat up, but keep in mind that when he goes to Minnesota, it's going to be his, North Turner will be his sixth offensive coordinator in seven years. It takes a kid with an awful lot of intelligence and stubbornness to hang in there and do what he's done. So has he ever fulfilled that lofty expectation? No. But I think there's some extenuating circumstances, and, and point number one is, He's got Adrian Peterson. He's got a really talented defense. Mike Zimmer is one of my favorite coaches in the NFL, and I think they'll game plan accordingly. And if this kid stays healthy, he gives him a chance. 
Which leads me to Jared Goff, uh, and we go to that component of it. Should I be should I be concerned, Mike, that a guy that the Rams moved heaven and earth for to bring in can't even push the starter who's not even a front line guy to start with? You know, I thought that Goff would start week one. And um, when I scouted both players, Wentz and Goff, my belief was that Goff had over a thousand more live reps than Wentz did in college as far as throwing the football. So Wentz threw the ball 612 times. Goff threw it plus or minus 1,600 times. So, and he comes out of Division One, And you can see on tape the, the quick release, the arm strength. Ball comes out beautifully. He took a ton of hits on a bad football team for a couple of years. So I respect this kid's game. And I think what you're seeing is a head coach in Jeff Fisher who's concerned about where, you know, he's been seven and nine forever. And he's sitting there going, I got one of the best tailbacks in the game. I've got a top 10 defense. And if we take care of the football, we're going to be in the hunt. So I think what it is is a reflection of the head coach looking at a very talented rookie and saying, I don't trust you with the football yet. So, Bob, that's a long way of saying I I wouldn't be worried about this kid. I think he's still going to be a heck of an NFL quarterback. I just think it's more a reflection of the head coach saying we could be pretty good if we don't turn the ball over. Before we get into this season and obviously this first week of games, and I, and I really want to I want to pick your brain on some of this stuff and, and get your unique take on it, I got to go back to this past weekend, the first big weekend of college football. And, Mike, were you as impressed as I was with some of the quarterback play that you saw? Because there were some incredible performances this weekend. <laughs> there really were. I mean – I thought the Texas win over Notre Dame was as good and entertaining a college football game as you're going to see. And in that game, I thought there were four high-quality quarterbacks that played. I mean, three of them were, were you know, plus 235 to 250-pound athletes. Uh, the freshman played his tail off for Texas. Last night, we had another freshman at Florida State take a beating early and come back and show what he's made of. I mean, I thought that kid played his tail off. Um, the kid at Houston, how much fun was that to watch? So I spent an awful lot of time in front of the television this weekend. And, you know, Chad Kelly, I, I got up this morning, and the first thing I did was put some tape on of him against LSU a year ago because I wanted to get a better feel for him than what I had just off the television last night. So, yeah, Bob, I enjoyed it as much as you did. I thought it was an awesome weekend for college football. When you break this stuff down, and, and I know your brain is always thinking about preparation for the next draft and now we've got this whole college season and it's it's unfolding and you the thing that that I'm always been impressed with about what you do Mike is you're able to sort of take what the guy does in college and then try to superimpose it into the necessary skill sets that are needed in the National Football League as opposed to just ranking guys as college players you project where they're going to be what are what are the things that you look for most out of quarterbacks you know, the longer I've done this, the less impressed I am with arm strength. And it's important to have a certain degree of arm strength because in the NFL, the windows are much tighter and the timing is much narrower. So you've got to be able to fit it in tight windows on time. So arm strength is obviously a plus. But when you take into account all the people that live in the United States of America 
and we can only find about 10 or 12 high-level quarterbacks in the NFL. It's kind of mind-boggling and shows how hard this job really is at that level. So in addition to arm strength, which, again, I wouldn't rank number one, two, or three on characteristics. I mean, what I think it comes down to is uh, timing, anticipation, accuracy, and pocket awareness. And not necessarily, all those things are equally important. And, for instance, when you ask me about Carson Wentz, my biggest concern with them, and again, I ranked him the number one guy in the country, but I had to take a little bit of leap of faith on the pocket awareness. Why? Because he only threw the ball 612 times. North Dakota State was won five consecutive one AA national championships. So they were a play-action team where he had a lot of room to throw the football. He didn't get hit as often as Goff did. So there's a little bit of a leap of faith there. But when you're looking at the quarterback position, you know, you keep going back to pocket awareness, anticipation, accuracy, getting the ball out, understanding situational football. It's not just about arm strength. And to underscore that, the best pro day I was ever at in my life for a quarterback, the most impressive pro day I ever saw was Jamarcus Russell from LSU. And he didn't even last in the league a year as the number one overall pick. Mike, as we get ready for the start of the 2016 NFL season, um, Dallas Cowboys notwithstanding, you can look around the National Football League, and there are a lot of teams uh, hunting and packing, trying to figure out their offensive line. It seems to me that, and maybe I'm wrong in this assessment, and you would know a lot better than me, but offensive linemen used to be, or it felt like offensive linemen, used to be kind of a sure thing as far as being able to project, being able to project them into the NFL. It seems as if teams are having a little bit harder time figuring out which guys are good fits and, and production level. Is it because the game starting in the high school level has become so much more of a spread that there's just a lot of guys that are not able to make the adjustment or have a harder time making the adjustment to O-line play and what you need to do on the NFL level? I would agree that I think the uh, the number of misses amongst first-round offensive linemen has gone up, especially those guys in the top ten who are considered the elite offensive linemen. And I think there are a lot of reasons, Bob, and, and one of them is spread offense, a lot of Let's take offensive tackles. A lot of college offensive tackles have never in their entire careers put their hand in the dirt. They're in a two-point stance and a spread system. They rarely are asked to do in college football what they will be asked or demanded to do in pro football. Uh, the run blocking in college football is a lot of just getting in the way of people. There's rarely a push and a physicality involved with it, not like the NFL. And then you get to the NFL, and every week it seems like there's another Von Miller coming at you. And from that perspective, it's a, it's a pass-first league now, the NFL. You know, 20 years ago, it was 50-50, plus or minus. Now it's a pass-first league. And, and if you're not 330 pounds and a dancing ballerina, you got no shot. It's one-on-one. And I think a lot of these kids come into the NFL thinking they're pretty talented and they're 6'6 and 320 with good feet, but all of a sudden all these defensive coordinators are coming at them with stuff they've never seen before, and it's eye-opening. And I've watched a bunch of these talented tackles struggle the last couple of years. Kid from Auburn, Greg Robinson, is as gifted uh, a tackle as I've seen physically, but they asked him to do nothing at Auburn, and that's not a shot at Auburn because their job is to win college football games, not develop kids 
for NFL careers. But I thought the kid was so gifted, but he, he didn't do anything anywhere equivalent to what he was going to be asked for by the St. Louis, now Los Angeles Rams. I'm hoping now, what is he doing for me, I think, for that kid? I'm hoping he takes off and becomes a top top flight tackle. Season starts on Thursday night. The defending Super Bowl champions, minus Peyton Manning, uh, minus Brock Osweiler, uh, will be taking on the Carolina Panthers. Trevor Simeon is going to get the start here. Carolina comes in. They couldn't protect Cam Newton in the Super Bowl, but it's different teams. I mean, it, it's not the same. Make a case here for me of, of how you see this game playing out, Mike, and you know how does Carolina fix the protection issues? They had all offseason to figure it out. Are you confident that they can? It's a really good question, um, and I and I think if you learn anything, you know when, when you look at what they did offensively, they were the number two league, the number two team in the league in running the football, and they were number twenty four throwing the ball. So when they get get behind early and have to throw the ball, and the and the play action pass isn't there, they can get exposed a little bit. So um, I, I really believe that A, they've got to run the ball. B, Kelvin Benjamin didn't play last year, and I was blown away with how efficient their offense was without a top-level wideout. So Kelvin Benjamin is back in that in that offense. Uh, I think you're going to see him try to be as physical as possible. Uh, whenever Benjamin's got one-on-one with no safety help, I think Cam Newton trusts him that he can throw the ball, and, and Kelvin Benjamin wins those 50-50s. And then I think you just enjoy the two defenses. I mean, Denver's defense obviously was the best defense in the league by far in the playoffs going forward. Carolina's defense, what will be really interesting, Bob, is they drafted a couple of um, corners in the second and third round. James Bradbury from Samford, S-A-M, not Stanford, Stanford. And uh, this kid Worley from West Virginia, and they're going to start. And all the stuff about Josh Norman and their defensive backs, et cetera, at the end of the day, the best thing that happened to Carolina when Norman left and they had been a been wickery, they were only really he was their starting nickel last year and he was on the P U P list at training camp. So these two kids have gotten every first team rep since the OTAs. And it's really gonna be fascinating to see how they're attacked, not just week one, but early in the season by everybody, and how well they hold up. So uh, I'm looking forward to this game. I think it's going to be a lot of fun on a whole bunch of different levels. Um, is it too simplistic to say because of the style of offense that Gary Kubiak wants to play, which is quarterback friendly, that we could just expect Trevor Simeon to step in and function at a pretty high level? I'm guessing, and I don't know. I don't have anything to back it up. Everybody thought Sanchez was going to be the guy. And if you look at Sanchez's history, he's been a very – He's thrown just about as many interceptions as he has touchdown passes. So I think it, I think within that, it tells you something about where Gary Kubiak is, and that is with a great defense and a really good run game, what do you want your quarterback to do? You've got to protect the football. And I think Paxton Lynch is not quite ready yet. I think he's the future. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But when you look at what Denver is and what's – I mean, in the, in the modern era of the Super Bowl, there's been Trent Dilfer and that unbelievable Baltimore defense. There's been Rob Johnson and that unbelievable Tampa Bay defense. And then last year, let's face it, with Peyton or without Peyton, the, the, the level of quarterback play in Denver was below average. 
and they won a Super Bowl defense. So it's atypical, but I, I think Coach Kubiak is playing to his strength. Talking with Mike Mayock. Mike, are there are there as we look at the 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 broad stroke here? Are, are there a couple teams that are on your radar that you really expect to make uh, a pretty strong move and a push this year to make a run in the postseason? I think everybody likes Oakland, and, and I think they should. I think the caveat there is that they're a really good, young, exciting team with, I think, one of the best young quarterbacks in football in Derek Carr. Um, but the caveat is they're in one of the toughest divisions because Denver and Kansas City is going to be four difficult games right there for Oakland. But but I like Oakland and where they're heading. Uh, a lot of people like Jacksonville, and I don't think Jacksonville is as good a football team as Oakland is, but they're in a weaker division. I think Indianapolis struggles with that offensive line. Tennessee's going to get better. I think Jacksonville and Tennessee are both going to get better in that division, and I think Houston's pretty good. Um, beyond that, you know, I mean, NFC South is interesting. I mean, four really good quarterbacks in that division. Carolina, the presumptive favorite, they're not going to go 15-1 and one again, and, and you would think that amongst Atlanta, New Orleans, and Tampa Bay, somebody's going to take a significant leap, and I think Tampa Bay is a team that could surprise a little, uh, a lot of people. So I, I think those three teams are going to be much better than their records were a year ago. Dallas is going to start the year without Tony Romo, may not have him all year. Dak Prescott, you know, lit it up in the preseason. We all know that the regular season and the preseason are two different animals. But what is it about his game that gives him a fighting chance to be successful? Now, the, the first two tapes I watched of Dak Prescott last year getting ready for the draft were uh, Alabama and Ole Miss. And it, it wasn't fair to Dak Prescott because his front was completely overwhelmed by Bama and Ole Miss. And I think he got sacked like 10 to 12 times, in, in the, I mean, five or six in each first half of each game. He had no shot. And I finally got to the North Carolina State tape and I thought that was an intriguing football game uh, because both Dak Prescott and Jacoby Brissett, who the Patriots took, I think, I thought they were two really interesting quarterbacks. Both of them were like big, strong kids with good arms, could throw, not afraid to push the ball down the field. And I looked at my Dak Prescott scouting report the, uh, about two weeks ago, and he was lighting everything up, trying to remember what exactly what I said about him. And, and basically, I thought he was – a little bit raw, but the way I summed it up was I thought he was a developmental quarterback that could ultimately be a starter in this league. I thought he had those traits. Now, I didn't expect it to happen this quickly, and he looked phenomenal. And I think if you look what Dallas has, it's similar to what both Baltimore and Atlanta had when uh, Flacco and Matt Ryan were rookies. And what that is is a really good run game and a really good defense. Because if you're going to play with a rookie quarterback, what you want is third and three instead of third and eight. And what you don't want to be is down 28 to three at half because you've got a bad defense. So you've got to protect young quarterbacks. And if Dallas can do that, run the football, play some pretty good defense, play action pass, use some of his athletic ability. I mean, I enjoy it. The kid really looked good in preseason, and I'm rooting for him. Bill Belichick is someone, obviously, that you have very close ties to. And uh, 
you know, with Tom Brady being suspended, uh, the lighthouse over in Gillette Stadium, they put like a tribute to Tom Brady. And of course, when Belichick was asked about it this week, he said, I don't know, it's just a marketing thing. You know, <laughs> he just, he, he soft sells everything. But if there was ever a team and a head coach and a staff that can handle what they're going to deal with here, it's the New England Patriots. Um, just take us into sort of the way they go about things and why they can overcome or deal with what they're going to be dealing with right now. I'm probably in the minority, probably the vast minority, but I believe this is actually a good thing for New England. And nobody knows how long Tom Brady's going to last. He's, what, 39 years old this year. And they've had to draft for the eventual replacement of Tom Brady for like the last five years. You know, it took Ryan Mallett with a second or third round pick. Brady continued to play at a high level. He moved on. Now it's Garoppolo. Um, at some point, Tom Brady's going to falter. And they got to find out what they have with Garoppolo. And I think Garoppolo's a smart, tough kid and, and won't turn the football over is the key right there. And it's four games at the beginning of the season, as opposed to a playoff run. New England always gets better as the season goes on. I think Bill's better than that than anybody in the league is at getting better every single day. If you're going to get New England, you typically get them early. So they also play better, I think, with a little edge to them, a little chip on their shoulder. And I think Bill loves that mentality of it's us against the world. And so I think all this plays into the long-term benefits for the Patriots. Sure, it could be a little bit painful, weeks one through four, although I think they're going to play really well. Uh, and ultimately, they're going to find out a lot about Garoppolo and a lot about themselves. Mike, I know that uh, you're about the X's and the O's and you're about the game, but you're also a, a fascinating story. And I know you don't like to talk about yourself, but we're going to talk about you a little bit because I think you have an important message to share. Um, so many guys that we see now on TV are, are guys that had storied careers and, you know, right away they're, you know, in prime spots on television. You played your college ball at Boston College. You got drafted by the Steelers in 81. You spent time playing in the CFL, spent a couple of years with the New York Giants, and then you went out and you embarked upon this career, which is now has you as the top analyst out there and I don't think I'm, I'm I don't think I'm uh, blowing smoke here I think it's a fact when it comes to the draft and running up to this time of year uh, your knowledge being a student of the game what you do how you prepare and the way you look at it has separated you from everybody else that does this and there's a lot of people that do it and there's a lot of other guys that do it well but you kind of set the trend share with my audience your road your path because it's not a silver spoon path you're the son of a coach. Football is in your DNA. But there's a lot of people out there that are always thinking about career changes. They're thinking about they're not happy with what they're doing. They want to do something else. And then here's Mike Mayock, who has risen to the top. You know, you're like a, you're like one of those rock bands that people think are an overnight success. And usually when those guys get interviewed, they, they're like, yep, 20 years of overnight success and a lot of hard work. <laughs> But just just detail for the audience a little bit about your journey and how you've gotten to this point and what inspired you. Wow, you make a lot of points there, Bob. And, and I think the first one to be made is a lot of people, a lot of fans don't understand the politics behind hiring 
top-level analysts in, in football. I'll only I'll limit this to, to football. And basically, if you don't have the yellow Hall of Fame jacket, your odds at making having a significant career in network television is almost non-existent. Uh, and if you're if you're not a Hall of Fame player, you better be a perennial All-Pro and close to a Hall of Fame player because I, I really think network executives connote big names with credibility. If we have XYZ Hall of Fame player on our pregame show or on our game telecast, man, we got credibility. Now, what I think happens is that a large percentage of the Hall of Fame guys figure they don't have to work that hard because they're pretty smart football people. And I happen to think a lot of them, not all of them, I think a lot of them mail it in. And that's why there's such a big turnover in these guys. There's always a Peyton Manning retiring or a, or a John Gruden coming out of coaching. There's always somebody else coming along. And once some of these guys get through that two- or three-year cycle and, and network executives like, that's all they got, huh? So now we're going to move on to the next guy. So if you're a guy like me who was a nobody as an NFL player, even though I, I might bring to the table the, the fact that I'm a coach's son, I've been watching film since I was eight years old, it is in my DNA. I do love the sport with the passion. I might have more contacts than the rest of these guys. I might work those contacts harder. I might watch more film than all of them. It really doesn't matter to most network executives. They want the name. So I've kind of fought that for the last 20 years. And, and to be honest with you, I spent 18 years in commercial real estate while I was trying to work my way in through the television industry because I had to make a living and there was no living for me to be had at any kind of level. So I've kind of gone from New Jersey network to the low level of ESPN where I was doing arena and, and sideline and Canadian league games on the sideline. And, um, to make, I don't want to bore you to death to make, so to make a long story much shorter, basically it's a combination of being real stubborn. I can't tell you how many network executives told me, Mike, you'll never be a, an analyst because you don't have the name. And I kind of just said, well, you know, give me a shot. I'll do anything you want me to do. Um, so it's a little bit of stubbornness and also some people that have been very good to me and believed in me. I mean, I would have never thought I would have done Thursday night football and, for doing NFL games in prime time, you know, and uh, Mark Quinzel from our network believed in me. I was blown away when he offered me that, you know, doing Notre Dame games in the national platform. I, I was blown away by both of those opportunities. And so there have been some people that have believed in me, and I've been stubborn, and um, I, I, I think there's – the irony is if you look at Kirk Herbstreit, his playing career was even less than mine. I think he was one year a starter at Ohio State and never got an NFL camp. He's now the de facto voice of college football. He's very, very good. And he didn't have a big name, but somebody believed in him at ESPN. And somebody developed that talent and that work ethic. So, you know, my, I, I've been frustrated by all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you just got to take care of yourself and, and work the tail off. And whatever happens is going to happen. Yeah, and I've seen you at work at the at – the, um senior ball for instance and the amount of the amount of time that you put in away from what everybody else sees and the on-air stuff I mean it's it's relentless but it's all about relationships isn't it I mean 
It's all about relationships that you made from, you know, like with Belichick when he was a young coach. You got to know him. The people that you met, uh, you're great at cultivating relationships. And I'm guessing that that's something that would be advice that you'd give to any guy that's trying to follow a similar path. I think the most important part of that is it's, I don't think I was ever consciously trying to cultivate relationships. I think what happens is when you deal with football people, coaches, general managers, scouts, whatever, when you deal with football people, most of them have a really good sense for whether you're genuinely passionate about football or whether you're just trying to get something from them. And that's a huge distinction. And if they sense that you really care about the game, you love the game, and you're just trying to learn more about the game, football people are incredibly open. I can't tell you how many coaches have sat down and watched film with me. I can't tell you how many general managers will close the door with me and talk frankly about draft picks and what they see versus what I see. And they know that, A, I'll protect them. I would never share any of that with anybody. And, B, they know I care, that I, that I love it. And I think if I was telling something to anybody trying to do you know, a similar type thing as a football analyst. I think that's the most important thing is don't worry about how much money you're going to make or cultivating relationships or anything. Just, just be eager and interested and want to learn about the game of football and good things will happen. All right, Mike, final question I'm going to hit you with. Now, Mike's in great shape. He works out. You can see him. He looks fit on TV. He's always, he's always primed and ready to go. So I'm going to ask you this, Mike. What's your cheat meal? Like when, when you're when you're saying, you know what, I'm not worried about the waistline. I'm not worried about the run I got to do. I'll run a little extra tomorrow, work out a little longer. What would be Mike Mayock's cheat meal? Unfortunately, I just had a cheat weekend. And I knocked down more candy in one weekend than I have in probably the last six months. I had a huge bag of Mike and Ike's. I had a big bag of Carmel Creams. I had um, Swedish fish. I mean, I sat there watching ball games, and I can't tell you how much candy I put in my body. So this morning, you know, <laughs> job number one was to get to the gym. Thankfully, I did. All right. So here's the, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the setting now. This is you. This is the way we end the Papa Cast. Right. So we've got you had a little something to eat. You're in a room. And on the table is all your favorite Mike Mayock candies. They're all there. And this room is going to be a closed-door room. And you're going to invite three people to come in and sit with you from football, from historical perspective. They don't even have to be alive. And what's going to be said in that room, the conversation that you're going to have in that room, talking about whatever you want to talk about, the results of that conversation will never leave that room, and they they will be held with you in perpetuity. Who would you invite to sit with you at that table in an unlimited time frame and just talk about whatever? Wow. Um, first name that comes to mind is um, John F. Kennedy. And I, I think, you know, I was young when, when he was shot, and... The fact that so many people talk about him and, and what he was trying to do with the United States at that particular time and, and what was going on with us almost going to war and, and the fact that people still talk about this guy so many years later, 
I would love to have a beer or a glass of wine, forget the candy, <laughs> um, and, and just kind of figure out what made him tick and, and you know, a, a life lost way too young. Um, that would certainly be one person. Um, she's, I think, on the football side, I've read so much about Lombardi's Packers. I, I read a book called Instant Replay every year before I went to training camp in high school and college by Jerry Kramer, one of his guards. And I always wanted to have met that guy. And he had so many of those, you know, things you put up on a wall and live your life by and all the slogans and everything. But he was also supposed to be a man's man, and he liked to have a cocktail. So I'd like to sit down with him. I, I think he'd be number two. Uh, and number three... Actually, number three I've already done, and it was fascinating. It was John Madden. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have dinner with him a few years ago because we share the same agent. And I sat down with him in Oakland before doing a Thursday night game uh, against the Raiders the night before. And he took me to a little Italian place, and I just watched John Madden come to life and thinking, how lucky am I, some knucklehead from Overbrook, Pennsylvania, to, to be sitting in Oakland having dinner with John Madden. Are you kidding me? I mean, to, that blew me away. It still does. So I, th- they would be my three. Did he, did he take you to North Beach in San Francisco? No, he had a, it was a little Italian place right near where his office is in Oakland. He's got his own little editing uh, area. And, I mean, he literally took me into this office, and it was getting dark. It was around 7, 7.30 at night. He couldn't find the light switches, and it was it was almost like a caricature of himself, where you you know you the old Miller light commercials mm-hmm. are all going through my head as he's fumbling around looking for a light switch in the dark, cursing, you know all the stuff is going on, and I'm like I'm I'm with John Nash. I, I mean it was I felt like you know how about every once in a while that out out of body experience yeah. where you're kind of like looking from without. Like, how did I get here, and how funny is this? And he took me to this little Italian place 10 minutes from his office, and um, it was awesome. Mike, that's great stuff. I encourage all the fans out there, uh, tune in to NFL Network. You can see Mike Mayock breaking it all down. And obviously follow Mike on Twitter, at Mike Mayock as well, for some instant analysis. Mike, thank you so much for not only the football insight, the friendship, and more importantly, for sharing your story, because I think it's inspirational uh, when fans get a chance to hear how the guy that they look see on TV and the guy that they respect and that they follow, you know, the road that you took to get there. And, and if it touches one person, we've done a good thing today, Mike. I appreciate that, Bob. A nice job by you. Thank you. The great Mike Mayock joining us on this edition of the Poppacast.